it's matured a lot. So I was looking at all the, the hype and craze back in 2017, and that's when my company put out a call on the future of this industry. And we weren't all that supportive because we thought it was running amok and it wasn't making sense. Coming to you live from Hong Kong Fintech Week, this is the Crypto Savvy Podcast from the Hashkey Group, bringing you the essentials. Everything you need to know about the world of crypto in one place with our host, Walter Jennings. We're coming to you live from the floor of Hong Kong Fintech Week 2021 here in the Convention Center in downtown Hong Kong. Our next guest is the chairman of the Hong Kong Fintech Association, Benjamin Quinlan. Benjamin is also the CEO of Quinlan Associates, a boutique advisory firm working with financial services and technology firms throughout Hong Kong and the greater Bay Area. Thank you for listening to Crypto Savvy and joining us with Ben Quinlan. We are very privileged to be joined in the booth today by Benjamin Quinlan, uh, who is chairman of the Hong Kong FinTech Association and also CEO and managing director of the independent strategy consulting firm Quinlan Associates. Benjamin, welcome to the show today. Cheers, Walter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, listen, um, this is your show um, and we're back live in person. Uh, tell me, what are some of the... Um, objectives for fintech week this year it's great to see the actual event come live uh, i think all of us have suffered from chronic zoom and virtual event fatigue so just being able to engage with the audience see familiar faces and shake hands albeit using some hand sanitizer afterwards uh it's it's a really good experience and i think for all of us uh, the objective is networking, really spending time to get to know the latest developments within the ecosystem, the collaborative approach going forward regarding where companies can connect the dots, and of course with the main stages sharing the latest and greatest ideas in the world of fintech. Well, and through this podcast and other initiatives at Hashkey Group, we're trying to achieve some market education because there have been so many developments in financial technology that um, I think it's making folks head spin. How are you keep? How do you help your members keep up to speed with all the development? Well, we we make sure we run as many events as possible. Probably four, five, six every single month. We bring in the best leading speakers and industry experts to present on the topics that are really front and center in the world of fintech. And that's divided up across our various committees. Uh, we have blockchain, we have reg tech, uh, digital banking payments, insure tech, wealth tech, future foundations. Um, it, it's split across all the themes that we fundamentally want to address in the world of fintech and, and blockchain and digital assets is one of them as well. Um, but I, I generally think it's sometimes too hard to keep up with everything at the speed of which digital change is occurring, but we do our best to make sure that we bring the most topical things to our members. I've had so many fascinating conversations with people out on the floor uh, coming by to visit Hashkey Group and wanting to share more about how they're integrating technology into their service offering or into their business. Um, and this is one of those places where you can keep abreast of the latest trends and changes. Mm -hmm. So tell us about some of the highlights for you of uh, the first day uh, here at Hong Kong Fintech Week. I think we had a couple of really good sessions this morning, particularly in the blockchain universe around the evolution outlook for cryptocurrencies, also future blockchain applications, which I found fascinating. I think blockchain has really made a bit more of a push this year than other years because 
Um, I think people are looking, what I would say, beyond a bit of the hype that happened back in 2017, 18. There was a broader adoption story and a broader interest that people really want to wrap their heads around. So some good highlights from that perspective in terms of the sharings on stage. Yeah, no, I've learned a lot about blockchain in the last weeks. We've come to the event with a commemorative NFT, and we've minted that on the Polygon network versus Ethereum to avoid the gas fees. Right. Um, so you're learning about the uh, pluses and minuses of various chains. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, now, um, so... Uh, do you feel that uh, the event is living up to your expectations so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think when you have something hybrid, you still give people the option to dial in externally. It's definitely not the same experience when people come to an actual physical conference versus when you dial in at home. But look, for the first major fintech event back after such a long period of time, it's really good to see such a, a big wide community come out and uh you know and make the most of the networking here yeah and for those of you watching us on the floor here ben quinlan is chairman of the hong kong fintech association um and um telling us about some of the things we've uh, been sharing so far today and some of the things we can look forward to are there any um uh highlights uh other than that you've mentioned some of the speeches as you've walked around the booths what are some of the things that you've seen that have attracted your attention no i think it's great to just listen to a lot of the new players step out and share what they're doing in the industry um you know i think you were talking before around the speed of development and change uh, as I go around and see the booths, I can see some familiar names, but then I see haven't heard, haven't heard, new, new, new. And then having the conversations to say, what are you doing in this space? There always seems to be a new development, a new idea, some new company that wants to tackle a part of the market that is not currently addressed. And that just gives me hope that this ecosystem continues to flourish and that there are opportunities that people are just generally going to find them and, and, and make the most of them. So plenty going on. This is definitely not a static environment, so it, it's really encouraging to see. Now, Benjamin, your um, uh, chairmanship of the Hong Kong Fintech Association is not a full-time job. I think it's a, it's a, it's a volunteer role that uh, you fulfill, uh, but tell us a bit more about your day-to-day -day work. Right. Yes, uh, the chairmanship role is uh, an, basically a not-for-profit role. I do that in my additional spare time and capacity, of which I don't have too much. But outside of that, my main hat that I wear is the CEO and managing partner of a strategic consultancy called Quinlan and Associates. And the, the firm is basically like a boutique McKinsey Boston Consulting Group, uh, Bain, focused on the financial services industry. And we probably do 70, 75% of our book of work in the fintech space, including companies that operate in the digital asset universe. So we're an official consulting partner to the R3 network. And we work with a lot of digital asset exchanges. We help set up new virtual banks. We work with the buy now, pay later companies, cross-border payment solutions. There's, uh, it's a very interesting area to work in when it comes to strategic advice. And how do you find the speed of innovation in these newer world companies that you work with compared to traditional financial services? There's no comparison whatsoever. I came from the cloth of working in investment banking. 
uh, extremely slow change. I think there are political dimensions, cultural resistance points, other things that make you know shifting an incumbentship that much harder. But when you come from a digitally native platform and you're not held back by the same restrictions or or issues as you would around legacy infrastructure incentive systems, everything built from the ground up in a digitally native fashion, the speed at which you can change is rapid. And I think the other part of it, especially with a lot of these fintech companies, is having the founders or the people whose DNA is embedded in the business leading and driving that change. They just want to see the solutions work. So, you know, it's in their vested interest to make it happen. And, and how do you find Hong Kong as a, as a uh, development community for some of these fintechs? Is, uh, you know, uh, are you seeing a, a lot of uh, new ideation coming here? Yeah, I think it's interesting because Hong Kong, it has the platforms and what I would say, the the infrastructure to support new ideas. So Cyberport, the government incentive programs, all these other things to really help drive innovation in the city. The challenge sometimes I feel with Hong Kong is, will it ever be what I would call a Silicon Valley? Because you look at the Hong Kong fintech ecosystem, it is primarily B2B. 70 plus percent of the fintechs here are focused on business to business. And when you look at the requirements of businesses now to engage with fintechs, the vendor thresholds tend to be quite high. So that doesn't necessarily bode really well for brand new startups. It more skews to the narrative of a mature, uh, established technological player. But notwithstanding that, as long as the idea is good and it adds commercial value, um, there are POCs or incubator or acceleration programs to really facilitate and support the adoption of these solutions within larger financial uh, organizations. Okay, now, Benjamin, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into uh, digital assets. Our show's called Crypto Savvy, and our objective is to help raise people's education and comfort level in dealing with digital assets. So um, you have um, four fundamentals uh, to valuing Bitcoin. You've uh, you've put out a lot of research. Tell us uh, about the current state of the digital asset industry in your perspective. It's it's matured a lot. So I was looking at all the, the hype and craze back in 2017, and that's when my company put out a call on the future of this industry. And we weren't all that supportive because we thought it was running amok and it wasn't making sense. Now, Dial us back. 2017, we're probably talking what? Predominantly uh, the bull ICO. Right, exactly. This is when Bitcoin was hitting its $20,000 highs by the end of the year. Tons of ICO fundraising happening at the time. So it was our opportunity to take a step back. We had analysts saying it was worth zero. Some saying it was worth a million. And my view is I've never seen an asset class in my life have this much disparity in terms of its price forecast. There's no such thing I've ever seen. Nothing comes even close. So I I basically launched into a task to work out how do we value this mysterious asset. And you're right, we came up with four different methodologies, cost of production, store of value, uh, basically acting as a foreign exchange reserve as a currency, or quantity theory of money. 
And we ran through a lot of calculations. There were assumptions we had to embed, but everything was pointing towards not worth this much at that time. So uh, we were the most accurate forecaster in the world in 2018 regarding its collapse. But we also said the industry would definitely rebound in 2019, 2020. Perhaps not as strong as it has, but we also did not forecast the central banks around the world pressing the money printing button to this degree. Uh, But I do think there has been a bit more of an understanding around how this asset class can evolve in a more sustainable way and really moving away from just the pure speculative nature to looking at what is the true economic value and use case in particular of leveraging blockchain tokenization programmability all the good things the really tangible things that come with the cryptocurrency ecosystem okay i want to uh, unpick your comment about the central banks pressing the printing of the money um is are we talking about uh, the monetary policy uh in a post-covid world that's correct yeah so tell me a little bit more about that uh, action, what those actions were, and how that's influenced digital assets. Well, I generally think that the, the main problem. Well, look, I <laughs> you can you can unpack my brain on economic theory <laughs> and where I sit on it, but I generally find that pressing print on the money printer in March of last year, I think March twenty third was that that big day where the the market rebounded, and we've just been in a bull run ever since. But the question was, was that the right thing to do? Again, we were facing a Main Street crisis, not a Wall Street and financial crisis. And then we threw a lot of money at it, as we did in the GFC, when the cause of the crisis was actually very different. So we ended up in a situation where we're now in an everything bubble. Um, There is no reward to being prudent. And what I would say is it's not just just, uh, money or debt is free. Its business models are evolving to encourage people to bring forward their spending as much as possible. Something like a buy now, pay later. You don't have money, that's all right. Just buy it right now, and you can pay it off later, right? Yeah, so it, it's, it's encouraged a huge amount of speculation. Um, but I think overall, when you look at the traditional asset world, it's also meant that the, the, the rampant printing of dollars has created a lot of doubt that people have around well what is fiat worth if you can just print it all the time at at a whim and that's where the digital asset narrative started to take a bit more of a hold and people said well i'm losing my faith in fiat because you know you're you're ending up in a situation where it's just worth nothing and governments can do whatever they want uh that's backed a bit more of the narrative around why i think the cryptocurrency ecosystem has grown even stronger loss of faith Okay, so um, governments are making monetary supply easing decisions, Mm -hmm. and that's having a, a, I would say, a ripple effect, but Mm -hmm. I'm not quoting a currency, Mm -hmm. um, into the the Bitcoin. And why is that? Because they limited availability of Bitcoin or the, you know, the... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if 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 your current, if you can just press print, you devalue a currency, right? The more that you adopt a monetary easing stance and a central bank money printing stance, the less valuable your currency inherently is. And that creates inflationary pressures, as we are seeing very early indications that inflation is spiking up. There's too much liquidity chasing too few assets. And I think from people looking from a, a store of value perspective, why hold your money in US dollars when the supply just runs to infinity? It's like basic economics, right? You supply demand if you if you increase the supply that much then the price 
or the unit value of each USD is going to decline. So yeah, so cryptocurrency, given the limited supply, 21 million Bitcoin, um, you know, that in particular, Bitcoin made that run. But there is a whole other universe of digital assets out there that link in a broader story for the ecosystem around future adoption and use. And that's where it becomes exciting. People start to understand a lot more potential. Now, Benjamin, I want to help our listeners understand the and be able to understand the differences between, say, cryptocurrency and tokenization. So cryptocurrency, if you can help us understand that as a concept first. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Look, many different definitions. I should give the link to the latest report that we wrote on digital It'll assets. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> but generally, cryptocurrency, the way I look at it, it acts as some kind of a medium of exchange, like the key word being currency. And that's true crypto crypto, right? This isn't related to things like a, a stable coin. Like a stable coin might fit under the currency definition, but again, like cryptocurrency, the core mechanism is around an exchange of some sort of value. It was meant to act as uh, the core essence of Bitcoin was to, meant to act as a replacement to fiat, so an actual currency. But the mechanisms around uh, how it's built and constructed means that the volatility of the actual underlying asset class itself makes it and the slow processing time and the high transaction fees makes it not the best from a payments perspective which is why you've largely seen it evolve into more of an investment asset rather than a, a payment asset and then other more stable uh, cryptos like stable coins or tethered stable coins have become those asset classes that act as more of a medium of exchange within that crypto ecosystem right and so mm. when uh, listeners think of crypto the vast majority will think of either bitcoin or ethereum yep. perhaps a few in ripple or polka yep. but those are tradable um uh, currencies uh or currency equivalents um that are traded digitally now there is also now the concept of tokenization Correct. can you introduce that right so this is where you get to a point where you can take a traditional asset class let's say a bond a share a piece of real estate and put that particular underlying in a token form. So for example, uh, I can go and do an IPO of a company and instead of having paper-based shares, I can create token form units of that particular company that is an actual share. It represents exactly the same share. You have the same rights, uh, the same protections that you would as an investor who invests in the normal share in Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but it's now in a fully digital form, in a tokenized form. And why does this matter? Why, does, why, do, why would people care? Because usually when you do that, um, the fractionability of the shares uh, become a lot more apparent. So as opposed to, let's say I want to buy a, a stock in Berkshire Hathaway, it's going to cost me 500,000 US for one, one share. Uh, a lot of people can't afford that. But if you can fractionalize it through a token, you can make that divisible, then people can start to buy in at much lower access points. And then you can disintermediate, right? A lot of the clearing, the settlement, these things take time, T plus two, T plus three, up to T plus eight in Hong Kong. Um, when you do it on a smart contract enabled ecosystem, it can be instantaneous, right? So a lot of the risk, the processes associated with a digital security become very apparent when you understand the benefits that can be gained. Uh, well, and yeah. also as an asset owner, you had mentioned earlier an IPO. Um, if I were the owner of a shipping line, 
my options to raise capital on a traditional exchange would be let me sell shares in the company. Correct. But with tokenization, I could offer tokens in a ship, ship. or yep. a route yep. or the cargo on the ship. You could. Yeah, so it, it, it provides a little bit more flexibility. Correct. Now, what are the safeguards in place to avoid an ICO boom, as you mentioned, in 2017? We ha we, haven't we heard this before? No, it's quite different. So ICO is completely unregulated. When you get in a security token space, uh, a lot of the time the platforms that support the issuance of these particular raises need to be licensed and then the procedures for the actual issuer need to go through a very different process. So as an ICO, it's completely unregulated. You just issue a white paper, right? Because it's not a real security. Um, but if you want to offer a security, if it looks like, smells like, feels like, tastes like a security, and there's different tests and different regulatory views, like the US, they apply the Howey test, right? Different regulators around the world have perspectives on what, what is or what constitutes a security. But if it does, it needs to be issued or regulated and, and it needs to go to market in that fashion. And as a result of that, digital securities or STOs are treated under the same regulatory framework as traditional securities. So in Hong Kong, that is the position. In the US, that is the position. A lot of the markets, that is the position. So they're regulated the same, and all the protections that would come in traditional securities world apply in the digital securities world as well. And Hong Kong has in place that regulatory framework today? Yeah, I mean, look, the the one thing that Hong Kong has moved forward with is the SFC has basically said um, any virtual asset service provider now needs to be licensed. So type one and seven licenses are required. The other part is no retail investment. So you need to be a professional investor, which means about 7.88 million I don't know the exact notional amount, about a million USD in liquid, liquid non-crypto assets uh, to be allowed to interface or trade off against these particular exchanges. And the regulatory framework is the default is very much that it's, it's governed by the same regulations as you would see in the traditional securities world. If you want to go and issue these kinds of securities, then you need to pass the same test thresholds and requirements as you would issuing a traditional security. So a digital exchange would be offering a digital equivalent of what the Hong Kong exchange would be offering? Could, and that really depends on the license of the, the exchange. So what, what what's happening is you've got a few exchanges around the world that have a full exchange license. So if you go to uh, markets like the Philippines, uh, Labuan, there are select exchanges within these markets with a full digital securities license. When you look outside of that in markets like Hong Kong and so on and the U.S. operating on ATS licenses, right, alternative trading systems. And there is a general push by these ATS platforms to try and do these comparable issuances on their exchanges too. Um, but there is a lot of what I would call regulatory engagement that's needed to get that pre-approved so they can put those kind of issuances on the market. You mentioned that the Hong Kong regime um, is uh, exclusive for professional investors, mm -hmm. yet um, I do know there are uh, unregulated exchanges today. Is there a kind of a window or a, a yes. period of time? So okay. it will be coming into force that it is just limited to PI. Um, we have, as an industry association, also shared our views on this and whether we agree. I don't necessarily think it is the smartest move. 
crypto still is predominantly, uh, you know, the narrative is driven by the retail market. I think when you cut out the ability to service retail investors here, does that create a safer environment for Hong Kong retail investors? No, I think they will find other avenues, other providers offshore to trade crypto. You may as well allow them to have access to regulated and properly licensed exchanges here. For me, that just makes a lot more sense. Okay, and on the other side, the regulated exchange is a better venue for institutions. Uh, why is that? So everyone has been talking about institutionalization for such a long time, but it's a bit of a crock because it hasn't really happened. And people go, well, why hasn't it happened? There's been a lot of quasi-institutionalization. So you've seen crypto-focused funds, or you've seen small moves by the asset management community to, let's say, invest like Neuberger Berman that recently said we'll allocate up to 5% of our commodities fund, which is quite small, in Bitcoin swaps, right, and futures. So that's like a derivative. It's a, it's a hedging instrument. As an institutional investor, what people forget is there's 80 plus trillion dollars of institutional liquidity out there sitting with big asset managers. They have very strict investment mandates, and they have fiduciary obligations. It is extremely difficult to break those two particular things and say, for someone that's been investing in traditional assets for so long, welcome to crypto land. So you have to give them product that is regulated, digestible, where they can, without stressing, say, we'll allocate part of our money here. Because it... It is a security. It's protected now. It comes with the same rights and obligations. And even the basic products that they're looking at now, uh, like a, a Bitcoin ETF, right? So it's still Bitcoin is the underlying. Or, but the, the question is, it's now a security. It's now an ETF. And that changes the narrative, right? It changes the narrative for an institutional investor. So... You can't put unregulated stuff that doesn't have fundamentals in front of them. But can you give them a beta play with exposure to this end asset class? Just like if I say Coinbase, when they did their listing. So Goldman Sachs bought in. Morgan Stanley bought in. This was the NASDAQ listing of Coinbase. So why did they do that? Because they can buy into a business, a security, and a share that's listed on NASDAQ. Now, Coinbase's exposure is all cryptocurrency. The firms themselves couldn't buy and hold these positions, but they can hold the position in a security whose underlying is all in crypto. It's, it's, there's a very important distinction to make here. Yeah. No, it's a proxy, I suppose, for crypto in, uh, in lieu of not being able to make the direct investment. Look at every single bank in the world or all these accelerators. They have venture funds that are throwing piles of money into new crypto projects and companies, but not the actual underlying asset. So they can invest in the company, not the underlying. One of the challenges I've heard with investing in the underlying asset is custody or being able to demonstrate where that asset is. Uh, can you explain a little bit about how that's kind of one of the bigger challenges? Yeah, custody is needed for the protection of crypto. We've all seen hacks and scams and things happening with the exchanges operating hot wallets, basically a wallet connected to the internet. So people have tried to develop solutions around how to create safer custody as well as the insurance aspect because if your custody goes wrong your crypto still needs to be insured 
Um, the big problem, I guess, with the institutional players is they can't outsource that custody as well. They're not going to give their custody business away like a bank. If you take an HSBC, they will never give their custody business away to a third party to actually the AUC, the assets under custody, need to sit with HSBC. So instead of trying to push for that business to come under your platform as an external third-party custodian, digital custodian, it's more about creating the technological solutions that allow existing custodians to park digital assets. So it's a big narrative that I think a lot of custodians have learned and have taken on board in quite an interesting way. I don't think they expected this, but... Yeah, I mean, my general view is no big custodian is going to give away that custody business. Well, it's a fascinating subject, and there are a lot of complexities to it. Um, I understand one of the ways you, you've got an unusual hobby as a way of de-stressing and detoxing at the end of a long day. Tell us about your uh, passion. My passion. So I am a stand-up comedian, so that's the other part of my, my job. I do that professionally. I used to tour a lot. It used to be a very fun part of my life. I'd get in a plane every three or four weeks and hit up another comedy club in a new city around Asia. Unfortunately, COVID has killed that. Um, but the good thing is shows have come back on in Hong Kong for the past few months, and it's great to get back on stage. Um, I've got next big show coming up 12th and 13th of November. We're almost sold out. There's a couple more tickets to go. Uh, and then we're done. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. But I'm very much looking forward to getting back on stage and an hour of ridiculous antics and just having a bit of fun. It's a good way to let my hair down uh, as a figure of expression, not really. Well, Benjamin, after this intense conversation about custody and the future of crypto and tokenization, I can't see you cracking jokes, but um, I hope to see one of your shows here in Hong Kong. And thank you so much for joining us on Crypto Savvy. Our guest has been Benjamin Quinlan, chairman of the Hong Kong Fintech Association and CEO and president of Quinlan Associates. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter, and thank you to the Hashkey Group. Live from Hong Kong Fintech Week, that was Benjamin Quinlan, head of the Fintech Association. If you're listening to us on Apple, please give us a five-star rating and wherever you get your podcasts, hit subscribe and hit like. I'm Walter Jennings of Hashkey Group. Thank you for joining Crypto Savvy. Thank you for listening to Crypto Savvy, the podcast that delivers the essentials brought to you by Hashkey Group.